Hello everyone and welcome to Lessons of Innovation, the podcast that brings you valuable tips and advice to help you succeed on your innovation journey. I am Mo, your host, and in today's episode, I am joined by Lida Gliptis, who, for those who do not know her, she's a geek, innovator, entrepreneur, a writer, many, many others, as you will get to know more about her during today's show. Lida, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. And am I allowed to give it away? It's so good to see you again. Exactly. So good to see you again, even though it's just virtual. Exactly. One day the world will reopen. Absolutely. You know, I have a lot of questions for you today. But to start with, I'd like to talk about your journey. How did you get into innovation? Was it always in your mind or actually how did it all start it? It was never in my mind. It is all one big, wonderful accident. First of all, I never wanted to be in banking. It was never something I had any interest in. And if you had asked me as a student, I would have told you I have no interest in technology either. So my current self is uh, is looking at my younger self thinking, what are you talking about? It was a series of events, starting from the fact I grew up in, in Athens and I had a rather extraordinary mother who was like, no woman in our family has gone to university. I'm not asking whether you will. This is not a debate. You'll go to Cambridge. And I was like, are you insane? And she said, well, nothing ventured, nothing gained, right? So apply. And if you don't get in, you'll go somewhere else. So a little girl growing up in a council block in central Athens in the 80s wouldn't dream of doing any of the things I did. But I was raised by someone who is a big believer in taking moonshots. And and a lot of what I achieved and a lot of what I did is down to being pushed at an early age to try things and, and opening doors. And then you walk through the door and you find yourself in an in a entirely different place. So I, I moved to the UK and I think that was a massive pivotal moment. And I, I had an academic career. I did a PhD. I was teaching. And just as I was finishing off my research and running out of, of the, the teaching contract I had, I had a moment of immense personal loss. I, I had three deaths in my family in the space of six months. And it, it really forces you to reconsider things, both from a practical perspective, but also from an emotional perspective. And one of the things that happened is that I couldn't wait for the next academic cycle to be on alert on an earning cycle. So I got out to get a corporate job, which was my first uh, taste of working in a big environment, working with technology. And then one thing led to another. A conversation with a university friend landed me in my first technology job. And then from there, I moved to banking. And actually, it was a conversation I had with my first manager where I said to him, I've been in banking for two, three, four years, whatever it was at that point. I don't get it. And he said to me, sitting in an IT and operations role, oh, you're going to learn it here. Have no, have no issues. You're going to work out how it works. Right. So, so you went to the corporate world, a couple of different companies. But then what was the pivotal moment where you said, I'm now done with academia, working in all these areas, operation, technology, and now I want to completely focus on innovation? The first pivot was, so you know how I said that the the biggest doors in, in my life were actually opened by my mother who pushed me through. And then once you're through, you make your own choices. My transition from operations and IT to innovation was very similar, actually. I had been working on the IT and ops side of things, uh, learning a lot, doing very interesting work. And it was my boss and my mentor inside the organization who said, it's time to do something different and bigger 
and and they sort of pushed me into into that next step in a way that was very respectful. It's not like I was forced, but I wouldn't have gone for it because at the time I a lot of the innovation I was seeing was very marketing focused, very event focused, and it wasn't something I was interested in. But once I was pushed into that environment, I discovered it was fascinating. I discovered I was good at it, but I also uncovered a whole layer to financial services that was sort of ripe for change and at a moment in time where the story was beginning. So it was a combination of luck and serendipity and and timing. And I found myself in a position where I, I got to start a journey very early on by someone pushing me through that door. And then through that work, I I pushed myself to take a chief innovation officer in a smaller bank that was very keen to get uh, credentials fast. So it was about implementing and executing and from there jumping to a, a startup and doing a sort of more hands-on work on the other side of the fence. So you've worked in both startup world and ran innovation within corporates. So I wonder from your experience, what was the difference between those two? Are startups like a smaller version of corporates or are innovation teams within corporate act like a smaller version of startups within companies? That's a very, very good question. And we could very easily spend the rest of our time on it. I'll try not to, but I think there are a few points there. So let's start by saying that there are many startups that could use an innovation team because they get really stuck to what the founders know or to the original idea the founders have. I mean, we always say startups are good at pivoting, but the reality is startups that survive are good at pivoting, whereas they're not all good at pivoting. And very often startups get us stuck in something that worked first time around or the way people's preferences are. It's as easy to get stuck in a startup as it is in a big corporate. And it's also very easy to acquire technical debt. It won't be as complicated as a, in a big corporate, but when you're building on a small budget against a very aggressive time frame, you will have technical debt by definition. So some of the, the needs to rethink and innovate are, are not incumbent just in the incumbents. I would also say that I've seen startups and I've collaborated with startups who have corporate founders, right? people who came from a corporate world and their habits carry on. I also have had startups where the founders have never had corporate experience, but they consider having certain functions and doing certain things like corporates a sign of being grown up. So quite a lot of the things that constrain corporates are very easy to appear in a startup. I think startups have a couple of things that make it easier to navigate. One is by definition, they're smaller and smaller organizations are always easier to navigate because you can have a personal conversation rather than having to find the head of so-and-so, you walk across the room and you pick up the phone and say, Mo, I need your help. Now, you can achieve that inside a big organization, but it's harder. I think the second thing is that a lot of what holds big corporates back is the fact that they devised policies, governance, and systems at a time when they needed them. And the world has changed many times over since. And sometimes they had a million other things to do and they didn't catch up with themselves, which means that they have an organization that's like a mountain range. Some things are cutting edge, some things are 100 years ago. A startup, by definition, doesn't have that burden. 
But at the same time, it doesn't have the other burden, customers, a balance sheet. So I think that the differences between the two are very meaningful, but they're not as, as different animals as we often would like to think. Sure. But then tell me one thing, how corporate could actually balance the need to innovate versus the need to sustain their existing businesses? You know, it's a good question. And you know, it's a question that doesn't have a, a, a sort of comforting answer. Because I'd say that when we started the journey, the, the exam question was, how can we change the way we learn? How can we start bringing new technologies and ways of working in the organization? And then as we were doing that work, the, t- the question became, okay, how can we now start building things with what we learned? And then it became, how can we bring those things to the clients? The thing you're trying to do is, is constantly changing. And at the beginning, it was about bringing those things in without losing momentum on the core of the business, without breaking the business, but also without leaving anyone behind. Now it's about aligning what we have learned to the core of the business. Now is the time when if you're not doing it at the heart of your offering, you're not doing it at all. Indeed, this is very, very good point. But this brings another question to mind that is I often found companies being good at doing a lot of ideation within innovation labs, for example, but it takes them so much time to move beyond ideation. So from your experience, is there any secret sauce that will help companies to move faster from exploration to execution? I mean, yes, there is a secret sauce, but it is exactly what you're thinking. It's courage because ideation is easy and POCs are easy. But the conviction to actually say, I'm going to actually take a stand here and put some effort into not optionality anymore but actual business priorities, uh, that's hard. And I actually find that it, it's, when the, it's showing the courage when it's required. And let me, let me tell you the, the hardest experience of my career, and it has happened more than once. It's not when banks have said no after a successful proof of concept. That's painful, that's frustrating, but it only really, really hurts the first time. Uh, because then you get used to it. And you know that for every 10 successful POCs you run, you might get one to make it to the next stage. You learn that. That's industry-wide, and that's actually okay. For me, the most frustrating thing, and it has happened many times in many different organizations, it's that very often the courage is not required to go from POC to implementation. It's required halfway through the implementation when something happens that creates pressure And that's when the leadership need to go, we will deal with the fire, but we will also continue with investing in the future of our business. And in my career, there have been three moments where I have seen efforts that are into their second or third year that are meaningful, that have proven themselves, that have early customers on there, that are, that are in every way succeeding, just not finished being killed because in those cases, the moment where the courage was needed was not in year one, it was in year three. But there will be a moment when courage is needed. And that's the secret sauce. Yeah, courage is absolutely needed. Well, this also makes me want to bring the point regarding the many talks we hear about embracing failure. So the question here, do we really need to embrace or encourage failure, especially as it seems there are some consequences for the teams who do not deliver? 
Or should we actually not embrace failure, but rather embrace something else? Well, so you know this is a good question. And, and, and you also know that I don't like this embracing failure thing because I, I have seen it being used against innovation way too many times. Nobody wants to fail. Don't fail. That's my advice. Absolutely don't fail. Um, but when you do fail... Fix it. So the whole point is, if you're going to fail, fail small and fail early, but try not to fail. So this whole fail fast business, I think is heavily misunderstood within the banking, within the banking um, sector. And, and I think you're absolutely right in, in, in the way you're angling the question. Because the first thing is that I have had it thrown to my face every day of my career for the last 15 years. In fact, I was on a panel yesterday and there was someone from the Bank of England extremely likable, extremely knowledgeable guy who said, we cannot innovate as fast as a startup because we can't afford to fail. And I was like, I'm sorry, stop right there. A startup can't afford to fail either because they're going to run out of money and they're going to all need new jobs. And why are we equating innovation with failure? The whole point is to do new things without failing. So I think the trying things out bit was heavily misunderstood. So if you take it back to tech first entrepreneurship, it doesn't say fail when your business is live and in the hands of customers. It says write the bloody test script and test it rather than writing 20 page documents about what you might need to test. It's all about iteration. It's all about having something in a test environment. It can fail in a test environment because that's where you fix it. So I don't, I, I totally agree with you that talking about failure both sets the conversation in the wrong place and creates these artificial mental barriers. Failure is not a good idea for anybody, but successful startups don't survive if they fail. So what is it that you should learn from them? It's not how they embrace failure. It's how they test, iterate, and move fast without failing. Absolutely. Learning is a key element. Uh, you know, I want to pivot this conversation a bit to discuss two of the many great articles you wrote. The first one is related to an article titled Unfinishedness by a Degree. <laughs> you speak about the one question corporate should ask in order to have meaningful program of work is why instead of why not. So why that is the case? I think I came to writing about this because, as I said, for me, the most painful learning of my career is that a lot of things are killed when they're going great because other things happen and your sponsors don't have the courage. And I've seen it in, in, in many different places. This is not one off. I've seen it in many places and I've had friends and colleagues who, who've lived through it. And although it is an absolute failure of conviction, that failure of conviction goes back to why a lot of those pieces of innovative work get done. And that why tends to be to not be left behind, to be seen to be doing it, to give yourself options. But all of those are inadequate, and if I may say so, weak reasons to, to do something. The main reason should be because I believe it's the right thing, because I believe my customers need it, because I have to, because the regulator asked for it. And I, I think having a compelling reason why you're doing something makes the arguments of whether you should continue doing it or not much more compelling. If you're doing something because you could think of no reason why not to do it, then your willingness to continue with it changes with the seasons. So 
we saw a lot of big banks kill a lot of programs of work that were succeeding against their predetermined metrics because COVID came along and circumstances changed, headspace reduced, available funding reduced, and all of a sudden there were a million reasons why not and not a single reason why. Because if the reason why you were doing something was the future of your business, better monetization, market entry for your most significant market, whatever it was, if there was a reason why rather than no reason why not, then when things get hard, it's still a priority. Having compelling reasons to do something instead of doing things just because there are no other reasons to do it makes uh, total sense to me. You know, I'd like now to discuss with you your second article, which talks about middle management who are often accused of stifling innovation within uh, large corporates. In one of your articles, Friends in Low Places, you write, and I quote, The day I heard one of the most senior people in our organization describe middle management as the swamp where things get stuck, where things sink, where things die miserable, slow, dumb death, my little mind was truly blown. Honestly, my mind is also blown away with with this. When you're not recording, I'll tell you who it was as well. So the, the reason I'm not naming her is that it was not a private forum, but also she hasn't gone out to shout it from the rooftops. It was a public forum inside a bank where Chatham House rules tend to apply. But it was it was mind-blowing for me for many reasons. And as I say in that piece, the first reason, perversely, was that I had never heard anyone speak so honestly before. So on a positive, it blew my mind that it was okay to speak like that, to actually say what you're thinking. So for me, that was inspirational. That was a mind-blowing in a really positive way because I came out of that meeting thinking, I can tell the truth and have a career. I don't have to pretend the, the, the emperor is clothed. The second reason my mind was blown is that, and that wasn't as good, is that I had lived in hope that quite a lot of what felt like the things that we were hitting our head against where I sat in the organization, quite like the bottom half of the pyramid at the time, wasn't fixed because it wasn't visible to the people with the power to fix it. So the realization that they know, but they either choose not to fix it or feel incapable to fix it or they feel it's not important to fix it was disappointing, actually. It was shocking at first. And then as it sank in, it was disappointing. The third thing that it did to me, and and, and I talk about it in the article a lot, is that it created the realization that the organization will tell you to tell your time, that you can lead from where you are, that your position doesn't matter. But the reality is if you're on the wrong side of the swamp, everything is harder. So if you want to drive change, you're going to have to be on the far side of the swamp and don't believe anyone who tells you position and title inside a bank doesn't matter. If it didn't matter, they wouldn't have it. But then what is the role of the middle management on the other side of the swamp? Well, so I think there are many different animals in the swamp, right? There are some people, and again, when I was in my 20s, I found it very difficult to believe that anyone is different to me. Now I I have come to terms with it. And can you imagine how noisy the world would be if everyone was like me? But I think the first thing to realize, the first thing I realized, and and maybe it was obvious to everyone else, but it wasn't obvious to me, is that there are a lot of people who don't want to climb to the top of the hierarchy. There are many people who don't want the responsibility and exposure. So 
My first assumption as a very ambitious, hardworking, curious, nobody who was trying to make a name for myself and build a path was that everyone wants the same thing. I'm competing against everyone. But the reality is I was absolutely not. A lot of people couldn't think of anything worse than what I was trying to do. So the fact that we have created a situation where the people who want to be middle management are unhappy even though they have what they want, is on us as an organization, as organizations to fix, right? The second is that we create certain behaviors that because people get away with them, other people emulate them because they think they're expected, and it creates an echo chamber, right? So that has to stop. You are what you tolerate. But then if you fix those two things, you will expose the people who turn it into a swamp for the exceptions that they are. The people who say no because they can't be bothered. The people who say no because they want to hold you back. The people who say no because they wanted to get ahead but didn't make it. They're a minority. They're actually a minority. I have met, I'm 42 years old. I've worked for coming up to 20 years now. I have met very few people who actively tried to stop me. I've met a lot of people who didn't actively try to help me, but the swamp holds you back because of all these assumed behaviors. And I think 80% of it is organizational and can be fixed. And 20% is bad apples. But if it's just 20%, you can pick them out. Absolutely. If it's just 20%, you can pick them out. You know, there are many more things I'd like to talk about with you, but conscious of time, I'm going to move to this quick round. So basically, I ask you a few questions and you answer each one in like 30 seconds. The first one is, what is your favorite book? My favorite book? Business? Doesn't matter. It's The Little Prince. Oh, Le Petit Prince. I like it. Another one is, what is your superpower? So my superpower for me, so the thing that keeps me going, is that I, I have incredible grit. Like I can be disheartened, but I'm almost impossible to stop. I do not give up. I do not give in. I can keep at it. And sometimes that's quite self-destructive. But from, from my own life, if I look back, I'll say my superpower has been that. It's not a very glamorous one. I am told by other people that my superpower is my energy. Absolutely. You bring a lot of energy even here. Uh, I can admit uh, to that, especially in life situations. Uh, I'm just going to call a last uh, question in here. So what is the best advice you ever received? Best advice I ever received was also the hardest to follow, but the most meaningful that you should choose who you are in life and let that dictate your actions rather than thinking, what should you do? It was advice given to me by my grandfather when I was a very young child, and I couldn't understand how people choose to do the hard thing even when it's hard and scary. And I mentioned it recently to a, to a friend in the industry called Josh Winterson. He said, of course, the way you do anything is the way you do everything. And I thought, that's even more succinct. I'm going to pretend I said it, but I don't. I actually name drop him because I think it's great that there are people out there thinking and living like that and giving this advice. The way you do anything is the way you do everything. I like that. And I guess it is a good way to bring this episode to an end. Lida, thanks for your time and for the great conversation today. Thank you for having me. And thank you for actually running this type of conversation. It's absolutely brilliant. Just before we leave, I'd like to ask our listeners to rate and subscribe to this show so that you don't miss any episode, but also to help others discover this show and benefit from this podcast. 
You can listen to this show on all your favorite podcast network, whether that's Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify, or any other network. If you want more information, you can check out my website. That is www.lessonsofinnovation.com. And until next time, thanks for listening.